Hi, I'm Sky. And I'm Dom, and together we're part of the Escape the City community. Back in 2010, escaping your corporate career was a pretty fringe idea. But today, thanks to the advances in technologies and shifts in attitude, it's becoming increasingly mainstream. Escape is a movement of people who believe that life is too short to do work that doesn't matter to you, and that doing something different is possible. We are on a mission to help a million people to quit their corporate jobs and find work that matters to them and the world. And we wanted to share the incredible stories of those who have already made their career escapes with you. Welcome to The Escape Artists. This on some books. (laughs) Today's escape artist is Alex Stephanie, the founder of Beam. Beam is the world's first online platform that crowdfunds employment training for homeless people. The old microphone book prop, yes. Exactly, super professional. Well, my name is Alex Stephanie, and I'm the founder and CEO of Beam. And Beam is a tech for good startup that is creating equality of opportunity at scale. And we are starting by crowdfunding brighter futures for homeless people here in London. And the way it works is we partner with charities and with local authorities and government, and they refer people to the platform. We give them a caseworker who basically builds a plan with that individual. Um, we then crowdfund all of the costs to them getting into a stable job or a stable home on our website, beam.org. And we support them all the way to wherever it is that they want to get. And so far, I've been going a few years. We've supported more than 500 people experiencing homelessness into jobs and homes. And that number is only growing. We're a team of 40 people. And I think we're going to be about 100 people, which makes me slightly nervous to think about it um, this time next year. So um, it's all go. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks, Alex. I mean, I've got loads of questions about Beam. I actually didn't realise you were 40. That's a lot. You've grown a lot in the last year. Yeah, I think we're um, 42 people now. And um, yeah, probably a year ago, we were, I don't know, 15, something like that. Yeah, blimey. When did you first feel you had some idea about the career, a career that you wanted to get into? Is that meant to have happened by now? Um, (laughs) I, uh, I mean... I mean, my experience was I went to school and then, you know, you go to a careers place at your school or university. And I mean, I remember doing a quiz and they said I should be, I I can't remember, like, you know, something ridiculous that doesn't even exist, like a a chair maintenance delivery driver or something (laughs) like that. Um, And then you go, great. And you go to university and then you realize, oh, actually, there are a few jobs that I can do. Um, and they're the kind of milk round companies. And those were the companies that were at my university. And um, there were the you know, the law firms and the banks and the consultancies. Um, I remember being at a careers fair, having recognized all these logos because they're sort of marketing the, marketing at you um, frantically. And there was one company, Schlumberger, that I'd not seen before. I was like, oh, that looks exciting. Maybe I can go work at that <laughs> company because these haven't been, I want, what have they said, those are engineering engineering company do you, are you studying maths or engineering i was like i'm studying english literature it's like not interested um so okay back to square one about better, better join a, a law firm consultancy or bank and i um wasn't very good at maths so i thought i'll join the law firm back then i think i was very naive about you know what was out there and i remember it was 2001 
and I was in my friend's room and he said, look at this website. It's awesome. And he went to google.com and he started Googling around. And I thought, this is absolutely incredible. Like, I think this company is probably going to be like pretty successful. Um, it's such a shame I'm not studying computer science because this is really interesting stuff. Oh, well. And, you know, thought nothing more of it. I think back then there wasn't really much of a tech scene in London. It was extremely nascent and people just didn't see technology as a viable route. Mm. Um, but, yeah, fast forward 10 years, I'd been a very, very crappy lawyer and a pretty crappy consultant. And my <laughs> law firm hadn't renewed my contract and my consultancy had fired me. And I didn't really know what to do in my life. And then one day I got a smartphone and I got a smartphone pretty late because um, I'd been unemployed for a while and I was pretty broke. It was immediately obvious why people were getting really excited about smartphones. And I remember turning it on and it was a little bit like that scene in Pulp Fiction when the John Travolta character opens the suitcase and his face is just illuminated. And I think my face must have lit up and I realized that, you know, this computer that people were going to be carrying around with them everywhere was just going to change everything about how we communicate, how we purchase things, how we bank, how we go on a holiday, everything. Uh, I didn't know how, but it was pretty obvious. It was kind of a century defining technology. And I started sort of hustling and networking and kind of really working off the assumption that if this was going to change everything, maybe there would be some little corner of this massive universe that might have a role for me. I got my first job in a startup and I then ended up running this company called Just Park. Yeah, kind of haven't really looked back. Amazing. That's some wild journey from being lawyer, Clifford Chance, to Just Park. At Clifford Chance, what was, the, was there any, I call them lowlights, like, well, was there any particular moment <laughs> where you thought, actually, no, this, this law lark is not for more this, but I've got the, I've got, I'm in the wrong career, on the wrong path. Uh, every moment, I think. Um, so there weren't, you know, the much harder question would be, were there any moments at Clifford Chance where you thought, yes, this is the career for me? I, I just don't think that the type of work ever suited me. Um, I was a bit like a cat and I felt like my fur was being just stroked in the wrong direction. It just was not, it's just uncomfortable. It just wasn't me culturally. Like the actual work itself was not playing to my strengths. Um, and, uh, it was really pretty quickly, you know, immediately obvious to me and certainly to my bosses that, you know, it was not a great place for me. I remember in the first week we, uh, went on this kind of really swanky, all expenses paid corporate holiday to Lisbon. And, um, I remember doing this brainstorming around what we could do for sort of client entertainment. And I thought, this is great. This is really, really fun. And I had loads of ideas. And after like, you know, spouting off with all these different ideas, I just was like, I need to stop talking now because I'm just some like little kid who's just turned up fresh out of law school. <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to, people are going to hate me as if they didn't already. But then I went back into the office and was like, I'm really good at coming up with ideas, but I'm really bad at law. You know, all these <laughs> other people are kicking my ass at the, you know, at what the actual job involves. Um, so I think, you know, that was in the first week or two. And so within the first month, it was pretty clear to me that I wasn't really playing to my strengths. Did you last the whole two years? Yeah, I did. The, I did the t whole two years. But what was, um, I think, really formative for me in those two years was Clifford Chance did this secondment program with a charity called Law for All, 
which was a charity based in Acton in West London. And at the end of my training contract, I did a three month secondment there. And then I stayed on working for this charity for three or four months afterwards. And it's a pretty remarkable charity that provided free legal advice to anyone about anything. What that meant in practice was hundreds of people with all kinds of terrible, terrible issues who are some of the most disadvantaged people in London would turn up to these law clinics in desperation. And you would turn up in the morning to work and there would just be an enormous queue of people snaking around this building on on the high street in Acton. I would go in as, I don't know how old I would have been, probably 24 or something. And I would be hopelessly underqualified and unable to solve any of these people's problems. They'd just sit down and have 15 minutes with someone who, you know, had terrible health problems that, you know, was trying to be evicted from the country, was in physical danger and massive debt. You'd be like, you've got 50 minute chat, help me. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, if you do that for six, seven months, it's really hard to not be changed by that. It's hard to not have your reality shaped by that. And I think, you know, that brought me really, you know, up close and center with some of the really terrible poverty that I hadn't seen really too much of in London. And one of the things that I think that showed me was that so often people were getting into these terrible messes. I guess I began to think, you know, what if we could actually just be more proactive and try and stop these people from getting into these awful situations? I remember a lot of people were in terrible debt from payday loans as well. And that was exacerbating various other problems they were having. Like, What if we could actually build systems that were stopping these sorts of things happening in the first place? And fast forward a few years when I'm running Just Park, I then began to think around, well, I've actually learned about technology. I can build a team. I can build a tech startup. You know, what if we could use technology and sort of aim technology at some of these social problems that still felt at the time and actually still feel, you know, massively ignored by the startup ecosystem. And maybe there we can get some really good kind of, you know, bang for buck in terms of our time and effort. You're thinking about, right, what do I want in my next move? You'd been changed by this experience at Law For All. What were you looking for? Like, what was kind of your, what we would call your good idea criteria? Like, what did you think, oh, right, this has to be in my next role? I mean, I think I wanted to work on a real world problem. And so I remember looking at lists of different tech startups. And I remember walking around Silicon Mill Roundabout. And, you know, there were lots of companies doing lots of things that were, I think, interesting. But they didn't really appeal to me. I was thinking, does this problem matter? Is this like a real problem that people are actually struggling with? Or is it a bit of a nice to have? Or is it like something kind of some cool game that, you know, is game number 56,000 that, you know, will, no one will have be playing or have heard of in a year's time. And I think that's what really attracted me to Park at My House. It's the fact that parking was a really obviously <laughs> painful, broken experience. People driving around paying too much money, being stressed, having arguments, like it was really messy and broken. Fast forward four years, the reason why I ended up moving on and and starting Beam was because in some ways it wasn't a real enough problem that as important Mm. as that problem is, is it one of the most important problems that, that we're facing today? And the answer is probably no. Whereas I feel like inequality and social mobility are things that we just have to get on top of and, um, you know, as soon as possible. And really what Beam is, yes, it's a tech startup, but it's also, you know, 
I hope more than that. It's you know, it's about social justice and racial justice. It's about equality of opportunity. Um, and I don't think we really have much hope of making rapid, true progress on anything if we don't have equality of opportunity, because it's just a kind of an old boys club. And, you know, we're not going to actually have, live in a meritocracy where great ideas and great people are able to fulfill their potential. It was really immediately obvious to me that there is an openness um, in the technology world that didn't exist in the previous working cultures that I'd known. And I remember just like tweeting at people and emailing them and sending them messages on LinkedIn. Some really influential, impressive, high profile people. And yeah, of course, not all of them met me or not all of them replied to a message, but a surprising number of them did. You know, I would have expected none of these people to, you know, bother replying to someone who's a complete nobody. Um, And for me, that was massively refreshing because all I'd ever known was uh, kind of super hierarchical environments where, you know, you'd have to spend 10 or 20 years kind of earning the right to sit down for a coffee with someone at that level. So that was, I think, a very liberating feeling. And then, you know, how the actual opportunity happened was because I went to an event called Launch 48, which used to happen at UCL. I think it still does. I hope it still does. People would meet up on a Friday night and have a beer and have some pizza and then join teams and build a business over the course of a weekend. And it's the sort of thing that I think Escape has done an amazing job of like popularizing and making more accessible and really improving access to. But probably sort of 10 plus years ago, it was like a really weird thing. I mean, still is quite a weird thing to do on your weekend, (laughs) but it was like a really weird thing to do on your weekend. And um, it attracted like a bunch of, you know, fairly weird people, um, including me. And but what was cool about it was I sort of found my tribe um, in that group of mm. quite weird people who turned up on a Friday night being like, let's build a business this weekend. <laughs> and let's not get very much sleep. Let's just see is f- how far can we possibly go building a business in 48 hours. And so, yeah, I met an investor in Just Park at that event. One thing led to another. And then I joined as COO um, about a month later. Amazing. Uh, how big was the team uh, Just Park when you joined as COO? Oh, super small. Um, we were right. like th- three people three and a half people i think and when you left how many um 50 60 wow yeah. okay so you went on that journey from three to 60 about and it also just park had well that was a pretty wild ride wasn't it uh <laughs> it felt like it so yeah i mean i became ceo and we were just two people actually and then yeah we we built it up with the, the founder of the original company Anthony Eskenazi, and like uh you know i just had a a great time with him, building the business, working very, very hard, trying lots of things, hiring some phenomenal people, many of whom I'm really lucky to call friends today. Um, you know, a couple, I guess a couple of like particularly unusual or interesting things happened. Midway through, I was asked by Macmillan to write a book. So I wrote this book called The Business of Sharing mm-hmm. on the sharing economy. And that was pretty crazy because I was writing a book and running a company at the same time, but super exciting. I mean, that opened all kinds of lovely opportunities. I went to the US and, you know, got to meet the founders of Zipcar and Airbnb and some of the top VCs in Silicon Valley and, you know, some really, really cool experiences. I kind of used writing that book as like almost like an apprenticeship of how to be CEO by just speaking <laughs> to amazing people yeah. under the under the guise of I'm writing a book um, yeah. and, you know, getting all kinds of advice from them. And then the other thing that was a really interesting experience was we ended up doing a crowdfunding round and we 
ended up raising the maximum you could actually then raise without an IPO prospectus, which was 5 million euros, about 3.7 million pounds. And at the time, you know, long since Eclipse, but at the time it was the largest crowdfunding round a startup had ever raised. And that was, you know, insane and exciting. I remember the most terrifying piece of that was the fact that we didn't actually raise that round with EIS, which you're pretty <laughs> familiar with crowdfunding, you'll know is like a really fundamental part of raising money, either EIS or SEIS. For a boring technical reason, we weren't sure that we could raise that with EIS, so we didn't raise it with EIS. And just before raising that round, I went and spoke to a friend who'd raised two rounds, crowdfunding, one with EIS, one without. I said, what's the difference? Did you notice? He said, yeah, without EIS, it was 10 times as hard to raise a 10th the amount of money. Mm. I was like, oh shit. Um, so <laughs> we're going into it with kind of that as a massive, massive headwind. But yeah, somehow managed to pull it off. And I think people just really related to the story. And we had good traction. We had a good brand. We had, you know, hundreds of thousands of users. And they somehow hustled our way to, um, to that fundraise. Amazing. Amazing. So when you decided to step away from Just Park, was that a really difficult decision or was it quite natural? I think by, by that time I'd been at the company four years, it'd been a really awesome ride. I learned a lot and I was tired. Like it'd been absolutely exhausting. Um, um, as I mentioned, like growing the team from a couple of people to, you know, 55 or so, and then writing a book at the same time and raising all this money. And I was pretty shattered and I felt like I really needed to move on to something new. I wasn't quite sure what that would be, but it got to that point where people were telling me about their businesses and I'll be meeting other entrepreneurs. And I would was kind of unhealthily interested in things that other people were doing. And I think that was a kind of signal to me that I needed to sort of pause and think if I was the right person to still run that company, because I don't think I could run that company in good faith if I wasn't like 1000%, um, you know, committed to, to that role and that relationship. So I thought about moving to the US and getting some experience in Silicon Valley. I then got into relationships. I didn't go to the US, but um, for all this time, I was sort of thinking about what is the big hairy problem for me to solve how can i kind of just i guess make the best use of what i learned if i look if i look at my family i think you know people who've done community work social work they're just those had always been the role models in my family and those are the people that i kind of grew up admiring not you know elon musk or sergey brin and I then had this experience of working at Law for All and seeing that poverty up close. And then I'd had that experience of doing that crowdfunding round and seeing how powerful crowdfunding is as a mechanic. I kind of began to put all this together and think, well, maybe I could actually have a real social impact with the tech tools that I kind of learned how to use and the networks and all of that stuff. Um, I still didn't really know what that looked like. And I spent a period of time kind of meeting other CEOs and investors and asking them what they think I should be working on. And that didn't really get me anywhere at all. I just had lots of coffees in fancy offices. And um, <laughs> then I stopped one day and I spoke to this homeless man who would sit every day outside my tube station. And I'd walk past him a bunch of times, if I'm honest, and he would always sit on the steps. Um, but one day I thought I'd sit down, I'd chat to him. 
And I remember the first thing he told me was that he would sit there because there was CCTV and that made it less likely that he would be beaten up. He's an Irish guy, mid forties. He told me he'd been out of work longer than he could remember. And we basically just became friends and we would chat and I would bring him cups of coffee, bring him pairs of socks, see how he was getting on. Then he disappeared and I didn't see him for months, but then finally he showed up again, except that this time his beard had gone and he looked maybe 10 or 15 years older. And I went up to him and I said, what's happened? Where have you been? And he says, just been in hospital. I, uh, I had a heart attack. And he's exactly where we first met. And so, you know, I talk to him and then I say goodbye and I'm walking home and I'm just so frustrated at the situation and I feel terrible. I've been trying to help this guy and not only have I not helped him, he's in a much worse position than when we first met. You know, I just thought, well, what could I have done to help him? And like, clearly didn't need a cup of coffee or a pair of socks. Clearly he needed, you know, a meaningful investment in his future. He needed skills. He needed training. He needed confidence. He needed support. All of these things that are going to cost much more than a Starbucks coffee. But I thought, well, look, what if we all just chip in? Maybe that's going to cost three grand and maybe I'm not going to pay three grand myself. But what if we all chipped in? I bet we could find that three grand. And then what? So that was the initial idea that we could actually build a crowdfunding platform that would make you know, really smart investments in long, you know, long-term investments in people's lives, people who needed it most. And then I just went through a period of kind of learning as much as I could about homelessness and speaking to as many people as I could, people who are in different states of homelessness and working for homelessness organizations. And then one of them said to me, you should go and meet this guy called Tony. I said, who's Tony? And she goes, oh, he lives in a homeless hostel, but he wants to become an electrician. So, okay, cool. Sounds good. So um, off I go down to this homeless hostel in South London, sit down with a guy called Tony. He is not in great shape. He looks, frankly, really, really down the moment I sit down. And I just think this is going to be a tough conversation. And um, the man's been out of work 20 plus years. He's been in prison a lot of his life. He's been a drug addict and an alcoholic. And I kind of nervously explain that I'm starting a new service where we're going to crowdfund training for homeless people and support them into jobs. And, um, you know, would he like to be the first person using the service? He looks very skeptical and he just says, can I ask a question? I go, sure. He goes, why would anyone help me? And I just say, oh, honestly, I can't promise that they will, but I think they might. I think they might. And I'm yeah. prepared to give this a shot. I believe people will. Um, and if you're prepared to give it a shot, let's just see where we get to. What'd you say? And he looks at me and he goes, okay, fine. So off we go to this place in Stratford where they people learn to become electricians. We meet this person who would teach him to become an electrician. I still have no idea if this is going to work. And I'm thinking, well, if we can't raise the money to pay for his training, I'm just going to pay for it himself because I'm not, not going to let this guy down. And then I think, well, let's, we need to get the story out there. So I pick up the phone. I speak to journalists to say, hey, I've got a really interesting story. This is a homeless man who's crowdfunding to become an electrician. And it actually becomes a really big news story. It's one of the top stories on Sky News. It's on the BBC a few times. It's on Reuters, The Independent, Guardian, Time Out, loads of places. It actually then gets covered, start, <laughs> starts getting covered all over the world. And we raise the money that Tony needs. He gets his City and Guilds 
electrician qualification. He gets a job working as a sparky on big building sites in London. Gets promoted, moves into his own home. His relationships with his family and friends massively improved. And, you know, six, seven months later, there's been this incredible transformation in his life after he's been in this sort of two-decade rut. And we've got this website We've got this team of like a couple of kind of renegade spirits, me and Seb, my co-founder and Julian, our amazing director of engineering. I'm just like, we're not going to stop now. Like, we've got to see where this is going to go. More people start getting into work and it happens again and again. And, you know, it happens four or five times. I'm still thinking, ah, this must be beginner's luck. But then it, you know, begins to happen dozens of times. And then we realize they're actually onto something really, really interesting. You know, now we've, yes, supported 500 almost 550 people successfully mm. through the model and every day people uh, are getting into jobs and these are people who have been out of work on average five and a half years and have mm. all kinds of barriers and have struggled for half a decade often or sometimes more to get back into work and this model is really working and i think you know at the core of why it's proving so effective is the fact that it really is a kind of community-led model. So people using the platform will receive donations and support from hundreds of people, on average about 250 different supporters who are funding their campaign, and on average 90-plus messages. And it's absolutely bloody transformational for people because when that happens, they it's, it's such a powerful affirmation of the fact that, that people care about them and that their lives have value mm. and that really boosts their confidence up. When I was doing the casework, like people would be so profoundly moved. People would so often break down in tears because it was just a complete wake up call to them that actually, you know, they have a future worth living and they have agency and that there are loads of people out there who want them to succeed, which is something that most of us do take for granted, but, you know, is something that unfortunately you know, there are millions of people who who, who just don't have that and, and don't have people who, who, are, who are backing them. So I think that's really what, you know, the model is giving people. Really, it's just hope. It's hope that, you know, there is a better future that awaits them. Of course, people's challenges vary. But then when you see that working for people who've been through some of the most intense things, you know, we've supported people who've been human slaves for like 10 years plus. They've been trafficked to the UK. They've been victims of FGM. They have like wow. terrible traumas. And they're still successfully using the model. And then you're like, wow, this is actually pretty remarkable. You know, mm. like I feel very lucky to be able to do this work with, you know, that work that, you know, A, has such an amazing impact, but B, to do it alongside such a brilliant group of people. So Beam obviously helps people to crowdfund to get training, to get into jobs, but obviously people lacking support, lacking the confidence, there's a lot of psychological support that people also need to, you know, get that back and be able to um, move forward after all of this trauma. What kind of support or how do you deal with that or tackle that at the same time so that it's effective? Sure. So each person using the service um, has a, um, a, a caseworker, we call them operations executive and and all of our operations executives will at any one time be working with, with a few dozen different people. And so that ensures that there is real humanity at the, at the center of the service. And although we give people technology and invest a lot in the tools on their smartphones so they can you know, do, do as much as is possible for themselves, there will always be a human being at Beam. Like you can't 
give people a chatbot. You can't purely solve this problem with tech. So, you know, the operations executive is a big part of it. And we've invested a lot this year in particular in training up those individuals to be able to offer the best type of support. And that is, of course, like a work in progress. Um, that team is now 20 plus strong. And we have, you know, specific people who are kind of focused on learning and development. But then it's also worth saying that, you know, we don't provide all types of support for these individuals. We're not mm. a kind of 360 degree service. We make sure that people are getting the right support from other professionals with, you know, in many cases, much more expertise than us. If someone is referred with, you know, uh, severe mental health um, problems, then we'll make sure that they're getting the right support from a doctor or a psychiatrist or, you know, whoever the right person would be. Um, and so we um, really kind of focus on that employability piece and also on the housing piece. And I think one of the things we've seen is that if you get that right, that has significant benefits to people's mental, physical health and and well-being. And that's probably something, you know, m most of the people listening can relate to. You know, most people have been mm. in jobs that are, they're really ill-suited to and they know that, you know, that has negative knock-on effects on other areas of their life. You know, conversely, if you're in a job that you're enjoying and, you know, is well aligned with your skills and culturally it's the right type of environment for you, then, you know, everything or so many other things, let's say, in your life just seem to work better from your health to your relationships and more. Mm, nice. And what's the vision or the ultimate goal for Beam? Well, we've started supporting people in homeless hostels, women's refuges in London and rough sleepers in London. That's been the kind of initial focus. But we really want to expand in, in two different directions. So one is outside of London. We've already started that and we want to be UK wide and we want to be in, you know, loads of different countries around the world. So to be a, a truly global organization. And then the other is supporting all kinds of different cohorts of people. So we've seen that our technology and our operational model is really effective at working with all kinds of other groups. You know, there's so many millions of people who might have mental or physical disabilities, who might be refugees, they might be in prison, they might be in care leavers or other groups. And so I think what will happen if we're successful in the next few years is Beam kind of transitions from being about homelessness in London to being about equality of opportunity uh, much more broadly. And mm. you know, it's something that I guess I can relate to as well in some in some small way and as much as like I don't have a personal connection with homelessness I've um, I've never been homeless fortunately um, but my auntie has been very mentally ill since she was a teenager and she's never really had the opportunity to get a job or to be in work and I think that's something that has really affected her as, as she's got older. And now, unfortunately, she's sort of uh, almost 17. It's, it's, you know, it's perhaps too late to help her. But mm. I think for people like her who are much, much younger, I think we can do a much better job at creating opportunities for people who may have some more barriers. People suddenly say, well, how's this different to running a VC-backed parking business? And, you know, <laughs> of course, there are many differences, but there are also some similarities. And, you know, one of the similarities is it's just like, executing really well is is everything and you know ideas are ideas are readily available but you know what really makes the difference is can you actually turn those ideas into reality vision without execution is hallucination i don't know who's <laughs> someone, <laughs> someone much smarter than me <laughs> nice doing your role like day in day out i mean there's lots of obviously really fun bits to it and there are some pretty probably gritty bits to it as well has it been rewind to when you started has it been everything you expected it to be 
Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just didn't really have any expectations. I think when I was starting it, I was just focused on trying to get the organization to be around in two months' time. Yeah. For the first two years, we never had more than about three months' worth of money in our bank account. I remember being overjoyed because we had like 30 grand in our bank account and that felt like it's incredible fortune. Um, and so, you know, in that situation, you're not really spending much time doing long-term planning and thinking you're just totally in the moment fighting for survival, really. When you get a bit more established and you get a bit more breathing space, I think then you kind of have time to to think a little bit less short-termist about these things which is fortunately the place we're in today and yeah, hiring a, a chief of staff actually at the moment. And the, one of the reasons for that hire is to try and liberate a little bit more time for me to kind of do more strategic thinking and work. So yeah, maybe we can just cut the question there. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really, I don't know if I've got a great answer for that, to be honest. That's all right. I never really, I don't know. I mean, it's such a weird, it's such a weird organization that it's sort of, I don't know if it would ever have really been possible to imagine what it would have been like. But yeah, I um, but, I don't know. But so kind of going, um, maybe rephrasing, or no, it's not really rephrasing it, but I suppose it's like reflecting on your good idea criteria when you were in your law firm and, and it wasn't ticking the boxes for you. And then you go to Just Park and, and you've loved so many elements of that, that, the role and the people that you worked with, but there was obviously something that was missing the impact element of it. And now you're kind of combining all of those Venn diagrams of great people, really important um, issue you're working on and you're in control and, and you've got the vision, you're, you're the key to the vision. Uh, is there anything else missing or is like, is, are you in your element? <laughs> um, I think I'm pretty in my element. Um, I mean, I feel very lucky, but you know, you also sort of feel that when things are going really well running a company, you're probably also about to step on a landmine. And I said that <laughs> to someone once and they'd like run companies for decades. And he just replied, you are. <laughs> so I was like, that's reassuring. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can't get too comfortable because at any one time there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. And we're still a very early stage startup and therefore, you know, pretty fragile, but there's an awful lot to be grateful for, for sure. You know, I think like with a very small amount of money in the scheme of the wild amounts of cash that's thrown around the startup world these days, we've built some a genuinely formidable technology. We have built a fantastic team. We've built a strong brand. We've got great traction. We've got great relationships with charities and with government. We've got, I think, a really interesting kind of impact and market opportunity. So, I mean, there's an awful lot to be grateful for. You know, I try and enjoy it as much as I can. I often think that people think, oh, it's great. You know, these, these the founders and they're doing really good stuff and they're getting awards and, and you've got a lot of awards and you've probably been to so many awards ceremonies, but at what cost does it come to you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there is a lot of sacrifice if you want to, at least in my experience, if you're going to start a company and you want it to get to an interesting place relatively soon, there was not... A weekend I had off as a full weekend mm. for years. Mm. Most of the successful founders that I know do work pretty brutally hard. And so that's not really for everyone. But, you know, one thing I would say is when you're passionate about what you're doing, it's 
for me at least, nowhere near as tiring and stressful as when you're doing work that is, you're not passionate about. You know, and when I was a lawyer, I would get exhausted working till 6 p.m. And I would come home shattered. Whereas now I could work and I, you know, I'm not trying to, I really absolutely do not want to glamorize working long hours because I think, you know, it's for the most part, a really bad thing for everyone. But the fact remains, I can work from 8 a.m. till 1 a.m. And I'm often not that tired because I'm so stimulated by the work that I'm doing. And, you know, actually I need to remind myself to look after myself, to do my exercise, to not work those hours mm. because it's not a sustainable or good way of working. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that I found. And so, you know, I guess the moral of the story is if you can find work that gives you energy, then that's a really exciting place to be because it no longer really feels like work. Mm. No, that's really nice. You've been through this journey. You've made a big change. I guess a lot of people in the escape community working as lawyers, working as consultants, you know, working in the city who also want to do good in their careers and, and want to work in something that gives them energy. Hmm. Looking back at everything you've done and, and what has worked and what hasn't worked, I guess what is one piece of practical advice that you would give to somebody who was thinking about taking the leap or or somebody who's starting out and and wants to do it for themselves? I mean, what I found useful, though, I think you've done a great job of of training people to be founders, is getting some experience in a startup, even if it's just some sort of side hustle or for six months, nine months. I think that's very useful because it's a very big change to go from being a McKinsey consultant to being the founder of a company. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to unlearn as well as to learn. So I think that's really very useful. But crikey, you know, there's so much good stuff, so much better advice out there than I can probably give on this <laughs> podcast. I feel awkward about giving advice because I feel like people the whole, people are often looking for this one piece of advice mm. and no, sort of like sure. Instagram, oh, yeah. Instagram posts that will guide them. And it's like, well, life's not that simple. No. <laughs> um, the truth is it's hard. <laughs> so yeah. I guess one piece of advice I could give people listening, although I try not to give too much advice because I'm not sure you should be listening to me, um, is um, don't marry your ideas, date your ideas. And so what I mean by that is um, often people think about starting a business as this huge, scary, massive, long-term or lifelong commitment. And that in itself creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of risk aversion. And that's just not the reality. The reality is that a lot of the greatest businesses ever founded were sort of created by accident um, and that you can start in a kind of informal casual way just like you know researching this market and speaking to some customers and packing together this little prototype with some no-code tools you know when you get back from work one evening a little bit early and that's a great way to start and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that and I think that's really a constructive way of thinking about starting a business. It's you're not you're not it's not you know about incorporating a business and quitting your job. It's just about indulging your curiosity whenever you have a bit of time and you know just keep pursuing that string, keep pulling on that thread of curiosity and maybe you'll get a business or maybe you won't. If you don't get a business then you know you've learned a few things and probably had some fun and if you do start a business then great. Um you're an entrepreneur. Amazing. Have you got any asks for anyone listening to this? Uh, we always ask that question of, yeah, do you need anything? Or if you want any 
requests? Well, if you're looking for a job, check out beam.org forward slash careers. I'm definitely hiring a lot of people at the moment from operations people, partnerships people, technology people all over the shop. But then if you're interested in what we're doing, just go to beam.org and join the community. There are about 15,000 supporters. So these are people that have um, funded campaigns and help people experiencing homelessness to completely transform their lives. It's a really awesome experience, genuinely, being a supporter, because what happens is you are subscribing for whatever you want, a quid a month or two quid a month. And each month you get an email and that email introduces you to someone using the service and uh, shares a little bit of their story. And then you get updates into your inbox on that individual as they progress. And you also get an uh, what we call an impact page where you can see everyone that you've supported and how they're getting on. So it's super transparent, super efficient way of helping people that really makes people feel awesome. <laughs> and I would argue would be a way more life enhancing, well-being enhancing use of whatever you might have spent on a coffee. Nice. Amazing. Love it. Oh, like, thanks. Love thanks it. so much, Alex. And um yeah, I, just, I know you're a very busy, busy man, and uh, with a, with a team of fifty odd, um, your your time is is very sparse. So thanks for sparing the the hour with us and, and telling your story. Thank you, Dom. Thanks, Guy. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. I'm always hugely inspired by what Beam are doing and it's just it's so simple but so innovative. It's funny speaking to Alex he's he's very good at promoting Beam. He's really good about being out there, but he's he's actually quite humble about his journey and kind of how he did it and you know very honest about his mm experience of you know you know he said oh, I was unemployed and I was broke and I did that didn't work and that didn't work and actually really honest about it it's refreshing because you often don't hear the kind of behind the scenes you just kind of see the highlights what about you what did you think doing this stuff is really hard and Alex is has a real I think he's got a really rare ability to have one foot in the detail and also one foot into the bigger picture If anybody wants to find out more about Beam and support the work that they're doing, then you can check them out at beam.org. And if you want to get a job with Beam, you can find them on the Escape the City job board. So Sky, what's in the top 10 this week? This week's interesting job is with the Rainforest Alliance, who are trying to create a more sustainable world by using social impact and market forces to protect nature. And they are looking for a director in Brazil to help them to grow and to manage all of their growth there. So that's a pretty cool opportunity if you're interested in having an impact and being in a really interesting place. I'll see you next week. Next week on the podcast. I was confident enough to go there and sit down and negotiate a lease for the island with this 65-year-old Fijian island chief. From an island in Fiji via the beaches of West Africa to the English West Country, Ben has spent 20 years exploring how to make a positive impact through building startups, communities and adventures. My uh, young person's rail card was about to expire. I was 26. <laughs> I was like, I've got to get serious. I've either, I've either got to go and get a job like the one I ignored in that queue in, at university or I've got to go and do something bold and different.